Before we get started, I wanted to remind you that we're doing an Ask Me Anything episode to cap off season one of The Art of Crime. So if you have any questions about who I am, how I made the unusual suspects, any of the theories we covered this season, or really anything relevant to the podcast, go ahead and send them to me at artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. That's artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. The Ask Me Anything episode should drop in early March. All right, on with the show. It was July 19th, 1889, and a London correspondent for the New York Herald was virtually certain that Jack was back. Two days earlier, more than eight months after the murder of Mary Jane Kelly, the knifeman's final canonical victim, police discovered the mutilated body of Alice McKenzie in Whitechapel. Much of the metropolis seized up with the news, gripped by a fear that the Ripper had resurfaced after a long hiatus. The Herald reporter visited the scene of Mackenzie's homicide, as well as the George Yard buildings, a stroll of one or two minutes away, where another non-canonical victim, Martha Tabram, had perished on August 7, 1888. Positioned in St. George's Yard, which abutted the location of Tabram's slaying, the Herald reporter took note of an incongruous sight. A nearby edifice was lit up inside, a beacon of light amid the shadows and blood-stained history of his surroundings. Quote, As I stood in George Yard, looking up at the balcony where the poor woman Tabram was found with strips of her remains tied round her neck, I turned and saw lights gleaming in a large building separated from the court by a high fence. On inquiry, I found it was a hall where a much-talked-about black-and-white art exhibition was being held. It seemed incredible that an institution reflecting the light and genius of the 19th century could actually exist and be filled with cultivated men and women, with its windows looking down into the very purlieus of London, unquote. The journalist was looking at Toynbee Hall. The name of this building came up over and over as I researched this season, usually in nothing more than a passing reference. Somewhere along the way, I took the time to look it up and was surprised by what I learned. It's an institution of truly historical significance, one that gave life to a philanthropic movement that lasted 40 years and reached from England to Australia as well as the United States. It was of particular interest to me because arts education played a crucial role in its agenda. Despite its good intentions, Toynbee Hall has taken on a darker aspect in recent Ripper writing. According to Bruce Robinson, author of They All Love Jack, Toynbee Hall was instrumental to Michael Maybrick's plan to commit the Ripper crimes. Today, we'll hear how this benevolent institution started, how it endeavored to better the lives of Whitechapel residents, and how it became attached to the world's most notorious serial killer. This is The Art of Crime, and I'm your host, Gavin Whitehead. Welcome to bonus episode three of The Unusual Suspects. Toynbee Hall and Jack the Ripper. The Reverend Samuel Barnett and his wife, Henrietta, founded Toynbee Hall in 1884 with the aim of combating urban poverty. Toward the end of the 19th century, many Victorians believed that members of the working classes were forced to live hand-to-mouth because of their personal, immoral actions. 
sexual promiscuity, excessive drink, or gambling, for example. Simply put, they brought it on themselves. While the Barnetts accepted that a life of unrelenting want could degrade the moral character of working men and women, they had different ideas about the root cause of impoverishment. In their view, the poor suffered not on account of individual ill-advised behavior, but rather because of social and economic forces beyond their control. Wishing to alleviate the struggles of society's lower strata, the Barnetts planned to establish a settlement at 28 Commercial Street in the heart of Whitechapel. More so than many Londoners, Samuel and Henrietta were alive to the need for reform in the district because they had lived there since shortly after their marriage in 1873, the year in which Samuel became vicar of a neighborhood church, St. Jude's. The idea for their settlement went like this. Members of the middle and upper middle classes would live there for an extended period of time, befriending the locals and uplifting the community through a variety of educational programs, part of which entailed the modeling of, quote, proper, unquote, bourgeois conduct. The Barnetts named their brainchild after their friend and fellow reformer, Arnold Toynbee, who, following art critic John Ruskin's lead, had lectured on culture for low-income audiences in northern England as well as London. As will become evident, the married couple gave birth to a curious cross between an educational institution, an arts organization, and a middle-class manor house, an oasis in a wasteland of poverty and vice. Think of Toynbee Hall as Whitechapel University. It certainly looked like an elite college campus because the Barnetts had its architecture based on that of Oxford and Cambridge. According to an American visitor, quote, Toynbee Hall was essentially a transplant of university life in Whitechapel. The quadrangle, that is, a courtyard behind the main building evocative of a university quad, the gables, the diamond-paneled windows, the large general rooms, especially the dining room, with its brilliant frieze of college shields, all made the place seem not so distant from the dreamy walks by the Isis, a river in Oxford, or the Cam, a river in Cambridge, unquote. Toynbee Hall inhabitants were just as used to these architectural features as they were to undergraduates' caps and gowns. The institution housed graduates of Oxford and Cambridge who had just earned their bachelors. The first cohort consisted of 14 men, and future groups would grow in number as the hall's reputation mushroomed. As historian Emily K. Abel relates in her article, Toynbee Hall, 1884-1914, the average resident stuck around for about two years, albeit a small minority remained there for 10 or more. After their tenure at Whitechapel U., most Toynbee denizens embarked on careers as clergymen, journalists, professors, politicians, or civil servants. The hall played host to a variety of educational activities. To begin with, it fostered independent study with its on-site library. Open every day, including Sunday, the only free slot on many working men and women's calendars, the library held more than 5,000 volumes by 1890 and burgeoned from there. The books were kept in the dining room at first, but they were soon moved to a separate location where users could read in peace and quiet, undisturbed by end-of-day chatter and the clatter of dishes and silverware at supper time. In addition, Toynbee Hall residents taught courses in their areas of expertise, with subjects as diverse as inorganic chemistry, astronomy, advanced botany, physiology, constitutional history, economics, the writing of William Shakespeare, Alexander Pope, and Robert Browning, as well as foreign language instruction, with classes on Latin, Greek, Italian, German, and French. These offerings alone would have made for a decent undergraduate bulletin. 
Beyond these courses, visiting scholars gave public lectures. Speakers included none other than Sir Charles Warren, Chief Commissioner of the Metropolitan Police during the Ripper's murderous spree and authority on all things Freemasonic. Warren spoke about his archaeological expedition to the Holy City to excavate Solomon's Temple, an undertaking that earned him the affectionate nickname of the Mole among Muslims native to the region. Some lectures boasted grade-A production values. With the permission of Henry Irving, for instance, Toynbee representatives raided the Lyceum Theater's property shop and returned with a model guillotine, which they erected beneath one of the windows in the library to accompany a series of talks on the French Revolution. As part of its educational mission, Toynbee Hall offered access to art, especially painting and music in the early days. Once a year, the institution acted as an art gallery exhibiting works by George Holman Hunt and John Everett Millay, two of the Victorian period's most admired painters. Check out the show notes for an illustration of one of these exhibits, organized by Toynbee Hall and held next door at St. Jude's School. When it came to musical performance, club rooms served as intimate concert venues in winter, the tunes supplied by professional players. In the summertime, Toynbee inhabitants and visitors attended open-air concerts in the quadrangle. A photograph of one on the Art of Crime website shows about a dozen musicians along with a conductor clustered around a large gas lantern lighting their sheet music as they play for an audience of 50 or 60 seated at the opposite end of the courtyard. Henrietta Barnett took pride in the quality of these performances, not least because the hall had the honor of welcoming some of the era's most celebrated maestros. Noted pianist Miss Fanny Davies, quote, was among those who made joyful noise in Whitechapel, unquote, Henrietta records. Finally, Toynbee Hall stood as a bastion of middle-class domesticity, a hearth to warm residents and guests alike. This went hand-in-hand with the settlement's commitment to education and arts programming. In the words of Samuel Barnett, Toynbee Hall represented a, quote, center to diffuse warmth as well as light, love as well as culture, unquote. Decorated with care by Henrietta, the drawing room embodied all these attributes. It combined the decor of an academic common room with the comfort of the bourgeois living room. On the one hand, the wood-paneled chamber featured mullioned, floor-to-ceiling Gothic windows, along with Oxford and Cambridge insignia along the top of the walls. On the other hand, it contained tables, upholstered armchairs, and a magnificent fireplace. Tidy, orderly, tranquil, the drawing room served as an inner sanctuary at the hall, a retreat from the hurly-burly of the outer world, and from the horrors of 1888. Amid the Ripper panic, Toynbee Hall residents, as well as Samuel and Henrietta Barnett, joined the search for the killer and used the spree to throw attention on the harsh realities of living and dying in Whitechapel. On August 7th, Martha Tabram died a minute or two away from the settlement's doorstep. In response to the slaying, Whitechapel locals teamed up with Toynbee Hall inhabitants to start the St. Jude's Vigilance Association, the first of several vigilante groups to form throughout the Autumn of Terror. As you might recall from our episode on Lewis Carroll, the most highly publicized of these was the Whitechapel Vigilance Committee, chaired by George Lusk, recipient of the infamous From Hell letter. With Toynbee Hall as a base of operations, the watchmen suited up and patrolled the streets from 11 p.m. to 3 a.m. every night, keeping the peace as best they could. 
An article published in the Bristol Mercury on September 13, 1888, reports that the Sentinels saw and may have intervened in a good deal of violence, drunken brawls in particular. Samuel Barnett confirmed as much when looking back on the committee's efforts in a letter to the Times in mid-1889. Quote, The record tells of rows in which stabbing is common, but on which the police are able to get no charges. Of fights between women stripped to the waist, of which boys and children are spectators, of protection afforded to thieves, and of such things as could only occur where opinion favors vice, unquote. It was far from the last time that Toynbee denizens would get involved in issues facing the district. To give an example, they took part in the historic dock laborer strike of 1889, overseeing the distribution of relief funds and providing a platform for leaders of the initiative to air their grievances. Though a hair older and perhaps less battle-ready than the Toynbee Hall crime fighters, Samuel and Henrietta did their part too. Each undertook a letter-writing campaign to raise awareness of the socioeconomic despair endemic to Whitechapel. Both drew a direct line of causation between the grinding poverty of the district and the available quote-unquote stock of victims for the Ripper. Like the overwhelming majority of contemporary and subsequent observers, the Barnetts assumed that the Whitechapel slasher was preying on prostitutes who never would have resorted to the sex trade in the first place if they had enjoyed greater opportunities and economic stability earlier in life. Samuel concentrated his efforts on the press. On September 19th, he mailed a letter to the Times in which he declared that the deaths of the victims, quote, would not be in vain, unquote, if they led to social and moral reform in the East End. Barnett called for four improvements that would curtail crime rates. First, more effective police supervision. Second, more extensive lighting and cleaning. Third, the removal of slaughterhouses. And fourth, the purchase and refurbishment of common lodging houses by gentlemen without regard for profit. If you're scratching your head over the recommended closure of slaughterhouses, it was Samuel's view that the mass butchery of livestock and display of their carcasses in public spaces desensitized residents, especially children, to acts of extreme violence. Meanwhile, Henrietta trained her sights on the Queen, pulling together a petition that demanded government intervention, with emphasis placed on shutting down tenements. By the beginning of 1889, the Ripper appeared to have put aside his knife, and early that year, the St. Jude's Vigilance Association disbanded. According to Philip Sugden, author of The Complete History of Jack the Ripper, the body dissolved in February, quote, unable to bear the long hours and exposure involved in patrol work, unquote. Nevertheless, as the letter from Samuel to the Times quoted above illustrates, Toynbee residents were still talking about the murders, the public response to them, and the ongoing need for change in Whitechapel. Before moving on, I want to give you a friendly reminder of what you can do if you like what you've heard on The Art of Crime and want to support the show. First and foremost, tell everyone you know, plus the occasional stranger. If you follow The Art of Crime on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram and get a kick out of a post, go ahead and share it so that others in your network can find out about it. If you don't follow us on any of those social media outlets, please join. There's a lot of cool paintings, sketches, sheet music, maps, and photographs on there. Second, if you listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Good Pods, or any other app that allows you to rate shows, please leave a rating for The Art of Crime. If you listen on platforms like Apple Podcasts that allow you to write reviews, 
it would make my day if you reviewed The Art of Crime. Finally, check us out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast and consider becoming a patron. Doing so not only helps keep the show going, but also entitles you to some pretty awesome benefits, including early access, ad-free listening, exclusive merchandise, and bonus episodes like this one, many of which will be available only to patrons starting next season. Also, if you prefer to make a one-time donation by PayPal, you can do so. For more information, check out www.artofcrimepodcast.com. All right, that's it. On with the show. According to Bruce Robinson, Toynbee Hall scholars were stalking a murderer who lived in their midst. Simply put, the charitable enterprise was the lair of a killer. Robinson's argument depends in large part on the settlement's close proximity to the murder scenes, particularly those of Martha Tabram and Alice McKenzie. It's worth talking about the latter before addressing Robinson's claims, because more than a few commentators past and present believe McKenzie to have died by the Ripper's blade. McKenzie's body lay more or less around the corner from Toynbee Hall. At approximately 12.50 a.m. on July 17, 1889, P.C. Walter Andrews entered Castle Alley, a narrow passageway running parallel to Goulston Street, where, as you might remember from the Maybrick episode, police discovered a graffito reading, quote, The Jews, spelled J-U-W-E-S, are the men that will not be blamed for nothing, unquote. Castle Alley was not the place to walk alone after sundown. According to an article in the Times, quote, people generally enter from the Spitalfields end, especially at night on account of the dark and lonely nature of the alley, as well as the evil reputation it has always borne among those respectable portions of the inhabitants, unquote. As he strode down Castle Alley, Andrew spotted a woman's body next to a lamppost and before two wagons that were chained together, her head toward the curb and her feet to the wall. On inspection, the officer saw that blood was flowing from two gashes in her throat. Her killer had hiked her skirt above her stomach and mutilated her abdomen and lower body, including her genitalia. Revolting as they were, most of these injuries were superficial, as if the perpetrator were only getting started when he heard footfalls coming his way. A medical professional later stated that fingernails might have inflicted them. McKinsey's homicide bears obvious similarities to the Ripper's handiwork, leading numerous contemporary observers to attribute the murder to the Whitechapel slasher. Eager as ever to whip up Ripper panic for the sake of sales, newspapermen lost no time in doing so. Yet the murder-mongering press was not alone in suspecting that the Whitechapel fiend had returned. Some members of law enforcement thought so too. In the words of police surgeon Dr. Thomas Bond, quote, I am of opinion that the murder was performed by the same person who committed the former series of Whitechapel murders, unquote. Nevertheless, many of Bond's colleagues begged to differ. The bodily mutilation in McKinsey's case was tame compared to the damage the Ripper did to most of his victims, Mary Jane Kelly in particular. Some considered it more likely that a copycat had killed McKinsey, imitating the Ripper so that blame would fall on him. 
In naming Toynbee Hall as the Ripper's home base, Robinson takes the locations of not just Tabram and McKinsey's homicides into account, but also those of all five canonical killings as well as that of another unsolved murder. He backs up his argument by showing that it's in line with the findings of David Cantor, a psychology professor at the University of Liverpool. Cantor won accolades in the 1990s for his groundbreaking work on the geographic profiling of criminals. Robinson does a bang-up job of explaining his research, so I'll quote from him. Quote, Be he a rapist or a serial killer, even the most cautious of criminals has got to hang his hat somewhere, and he's got to walk out of his door. The moment he does, he's unconsciously making a map, putting down a personalized geography that Professor Cantor is able to read, unquote. Robinson continues, quote, Computers, as yet, are never better than the brain they serve, and Mr. Cantor is not shortchanged in this department. By a process of sophisticated deduction, he is able to find where X marks the spot, unquote. Based on the geographical location of a single perpetrator's crimes, in other words, Cantor can work out more or less where the criminal makes his home, potentially leading to his capture. The professor has weighed in on the Ripper killings, and based on his analysis, he locates the menace's place of residence or finds where X marks the spot, as Robinson puts it, a little to the north of where Commercial Street meets Whitechapel Road. Cantor's X is a hop, skip, and a jump away from Toynbee Hall. Partly based on the psychologist's analysis, Robinson posits that Toynbee Hall acted as a safe haven for Maybrick after he killed his victims. He contends that Maybrick would have known about Toynbee Hall thanks to his friend and collaborator, Captain W.H. Thomas, who taught music to children there. He may have even visited as a guest before he went crazy and started slashing. The rich and famous singer-songwriter certainly belonged to the better sort, and he would have fit in among the hall's middle-class inhabitants. To Robinson's mind, quote, even the most constipated of intellects would have to concede that Toynbee Hall would make a most inspired lair for a visiting gentleman psychopath. Above suspicion, you could snuff at will and hasten back, a wash and brush up and pickle your kidney, and with chalk in your pocket and Jews, spelled J-U-W-E-S, on your mind, stick on a hat and take a stroll at your ease up Goulston Street, unquote. Robinson's claim isn't unreasonable, but, as he notes in a passage near the end of his book, there's no record of Maybrick's ever setting foot at Toynbee Hall. Official logs, which are easily accessible online, record the comings and goings of visitors there, and Maybrick's name is never mentioned. Robinson appears to imply that somebody removed any reference to the gentleman psychopath from these documents to conceal his ties to the settlement. Whether or not Jack ever crashed under its roof, Toynbee Hall is an institution of historical importance. Inspired by the Barnett's example, social reformers throughout the United Kingdom, as well as on the far side of the Atlantic, took up similar projects. By 1911, 49 settlements modeled after Toynbee Hall had cropped up across Great Britain, with more than 400 opening their doors in the United States by 1910. The most famous American example would be Chicago's Hull House, founded in 1889 by Jane Addams and Ellen Gates Starr. 
Toynbee Hall brought arts and ideas to a lot of people with limited access to them, and its inhabitants took steps to make Whitechapel safer, bundling up for freezing temperatures and pursuing a killer in the dead of night. For these reasons and others, it deserves kudos. That being said, the settlement's early methods were not without problems. If you ask historian Emily K. Abel, Toynbee Hall fell short of its goal of cultivating meaningful relationships with the poor in Whitechapel. Her research suggests that more middle-class visitors crossed its threshold than did working men and women. The institution's academic and bourgeois ethos itself may have alienated and intimidated them. Furthermore, it cost one shilling to enroll in a course at Toynbee Hall, a price that would have proven prohibitively expensive to the vast majority of workers in the area. Abel also demonstrates that at least one early resident recognized the flaws in Toynbee Hall's methods, drawing attention to the experiences of C.R. Ashby, a Cambridge graduate who was stirred to action by the socialist poet Edward Carpenter. On paying his first visit to the hall in 1886, Ashby looked askance at the enterprise's markedly bourgeois sensibility. He dismisses it as, quote, top-hatty philanthropy, unquote. Still, he took up residence there for a brief time, only to defect with four other residents, disenchanted. Viewed from a modern standpoint, other blemishes stick out. Toynbee Hall was a product of Victorian London, after all, and its mission reflected several contemporary attitudes that haven't aged well. In a society largely shaped by middle-class values, the settlement's founders would seem to have taken for granted the cultural and moral superiority of the bourgeoisie to the working classes. At the height of the British Empire, moreover, the act of settling in a poor part of town to better the lives of the locals also recalls the imperialist practice of colonizing territories to quote-unquote civilize their inhabitants. Despite these strikes against the Barnett's vision, The sheer longevity of their project suggests that it played, and continues to play, a positive role in the lives of many Whitechapel residents. Today, Commercial Street looks nothing like it would have in the 1880s, disfigured and transfigured beyond recognition, first by bombing in World War II and then by urban renewal initiatives. Yet Toynbee Hall is still standing, and you can visit if you want. Volunteers stopped living there in 2011 but it serves the neighborhood much as it did more than a century ago. At present, however, it's particularly geared toward the immigrant community. Some of the current programming harkens back to the Barnett's founding mission to enable engagement with art and culture. There are classes on the humanities, including workshops on history, drama, and more. Furthermore, the world-famous Whitechapel Art Gallery located nearby grew out of Toynbee Hall's annual exhibitions. Other courses now on offer are newer and more practical, conceived to help students get by in the modern world. These cover topics like financial literacy, from personal budgeting to investment and English as a second language. Almost 140 years after the founding of Toynbee Hall, the spirits of Samuel and Henrietta Barnett are still making a difference at Commercial Street. You've been listening to The Art of Crime, created, written, and narrated by yours truly, Gavin Whitehead. Liam Bellman Sharp edited sound and composed the score. Last but not least, a thousand thanks to research and production assistant, Ken Symphonies. If you liked what you heard, please tell the world, by which I mean everyone you know, plus the occasional stranger. Also, if you can... 
take a minute to rate and review the podcast. It goes a long way in helping other listeners find out about it. Finally, all throughout history, artists have relied on the support of patrons to make their work. The same holds true for podcasters doing shows about historical artists. So please consider making a donation at patreon.com slash artofcrimepodcast. Every bit counts and is massively appreciated. As a reminder, be sure to check out the Art of Crime website, artofcrimepodcast.com. It features all kinds of images relevant to the show, including maps, drawings, paintings, photographs, sheet music, and more. You can also follow us on Facebook at Art of Crime Podcast and Twitter at Art of Crime Pod. If you have questions, comments, or feedback, please don't hesitate to drop me a line at artofcrimepodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening, and until next time. <laughs>